So I wonder, do I have to count you as a co-host? If I, does it count as a co-host if I have a baby sitting in on the podcast? Not really. I mean, you're not really going to be contributing to the conversation. And if you do, I will be really impressed. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this episode, we're going to run down some of the very best films produced by writer-director Chad Apatow and a new installment of Let's Talk About Six, all leading up to our review of the latest Apatow Productions release the Michael Showalter-directed The Big Sick. Now, you may have noticed I have a little person sitting here with me. It's because my daughter is actually uh, in the room as I'm recording this. So if you happen to hear any little baby sounds... I thought she was going to do one on cue right there. If you happen to hear any little baby sounds, that's, uh, that's what that is. It's not me... Uh, squealing with delight over a phone talking about or anything um, but so that's what we have in the queue for today pull up a chair let's get things started so first of all I should probably explain a couple of things one uh, I teased in the last episode that I was going to be talking about Dunkirk and doing sort of a Christopher Nolan um, retrospective slash exploration uh, last uh, last week and I am not doing that as you can probably tell by now uh, it's probably because I didn't get a chance to see Dunkirk yet and I want to make sure I give it the time that it deserves. It's just the way timing schedules worked out. I didn't. I didn't really. Um, I wasn't able to make it to a screening of that this past weekend. And also the fact that I wanted to squeeze in the big sick while it's still playing in my in my area. I know that it's been. Uh, it just went wide, and it's it's been expanding over the last few weeks. And I wanted to make sure that I actually got to see it before it's gone. It strikes me as one of those movies that's playing in your area for a few weeks, and then good luck. Check it out on VOD or, or Blu-ray or something. So I'd heard some such rapturous things about it that I really wanted to make sure I saw it in theaters and, and support it in that way. Also, um, you know, I had a power outage this weekend, which is, you know, that's Florida, I guess. So it sort of present, prevented me from getting on top of the podcast um, on Saturday or Sunday like I would hope. Yes, honey? <laughs> She's like, I shouldn't have done that. Um, uh, that's hence you're getting the podcast probably Monday at this point. So I just wanted to lay a couple of things out of the way. Um, also, we're going to be doing, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at Judd Apatow's career um, leading up to the Big Sick, sort of. But we're going to be looking at him more as a producer because he didn't direct the Big Sick. We're going to be using the criteria that we're not counting any of the films that Apatow has directed, so don't don't expect 40-Year-Old Virgin to come up here or Knocked Up or, um, you know, Funny People, This is 40, Trainwreck, even though those are all really good films, really good to great, I would say, um, they're disqualified from this conversation. So The Big Sex, we get it, the big, big, that sounded like I said The Big Sex, which is a totally different movie. Maybe that'll be the XXX parody of this, uh, of this, this film, but... Um, the Big Six has been getting all kinds of crazy reviews, uh, crazy positive reviews, and actually doing really well at the box office, considering its moderate budget. But it's only the latest in the long, long, long series of films that Judd Apatow has directed. Mostly comedies, but there's some surprising ones in there if you uh, if you really look at his filmography. So um, you know, let's uh, let's talk about Six. Let's talk about Six, baby. Let's talk about flicks and me. Let's talk about what the good films and the bad films are to me. Let's talk about six. Let's talk about six. Coming in at number six is a film that a lot of people probably never even realized that Judd Apatow produced. Even I forgot 
that he had anything to do with it. And I really enjoy this film. So this is Begin Again from writer-director John Carney. It's actually sort of become, I guess, kind of the forgotten middle chapter of his musical coming-of-age trilogy, starting with Once in 2007 and My Beloved Sing Street last year. And uh, that was actually my favorite film of 2016. So Begin Again ranked in my top 10 of 2014, although IMDb tells me it came out in 2013, so I'm assuming it hit the film festival circuit early. But this is about Mark Ruffalo as a uh, sort of washed-up record executive looking for um, a new artist to sign. He stumbles across um, Kira Knightley's sort of wayward singer, um, dealing with her own personal uh, crossroads and the two of them sort of uh, helping each other to begin again, as the title would suggest. And it has uh, lovely original music and two very charming performances by actors who most people probably know as the Hulk and, uh, you know, Elizabeth Swan from Pirates of the Caribbean. And I think they do great understated work here. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate that a lot, a lot of people have seen this. So I would def definitely check that film out um, if you haven't seen it already. Coming in at number five, another musical-based film. This is thankfully one that I loved quite a bit last year, but one that is now I'm hearing more and more about. Um, that is Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. This is the musical mockumentary from The Lonely Island. And uh, it's actually recently hit HBO Go, HBO Now, whatever the hell they're calling those things now. Um, and this is this is a hilarious send up of pop musical icons in the vein of you know Justin Bieber. I think was a big inspiration, especially for the title. And uh, it has hilarious music, as you would assume from uh, The Lonely Island. Um, I've I've been listening to the sound ask, ask Kai. I've been listening to the soundtrack way way more than she would prefer uh, in the last year or so since I saw the film. And um, it, it really it's one of those movies that rewards repeat viewings. I think the more you see it, the more you the more it kind of grows on you. Um, and this one podcast that I listened to called The Next Picture Show actually paired it with This Is Spinal Tap, sort of looking at those two films side by side. And I think there's a lot of comparisons to be made between the two of them. Um, mockumentaries have never really been mainstream. And that's why, unfortunately, Popstar um, did not light the box office on fire at all. In fact, I feel like it, it was gone out of theaters in a, maybe a couple weeks. Um, uh, Kai and I were among the people that did see it, and I'm, I've always been a big fan of The Lonely Island, and I think even if you're not a huge fan of their music, um, I think you might still find this movie um, enjoyable just because of the sort of satirical view it has on modern pop music. Coming in at number four, we have Superbad from 2007. This is, of course, from director Greg Matola, starring Michael Cera and uh, Jonah Hill, and kind of brought them... Uh, brought their careers to new heights, also introduced to us, um, I think at least on the big screen, Bill Hader, I don't think had ever really done anything this high profile, as well as Emma Stone. That was her first movie, believe it or not. Um, this this is a really, you know, you, you see raunch comedies like this, and a lot of times they don't work for me because they just seem like they're trying to be crass for the sake of being crass. But this is a movie that does have a really, um, a really heartfelt story behind it of friendship and these two guys who are just scared of, of losing that 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 bond that they've they've established in high school and and it has really great performances by all of them and the sharp writing from evan goldberg and seth rogan who have now who, seth rogan of course who has a supporting role um but rogan and goldberg who are now directing films and producing like we could do it let's talk about six producing movies of, of their films at this point i mean they're doing preacher now on amc so they're this was sort of the beginning of their 
um, explosion as sort of auteurs in their own right. Um, and it's based directly on their friendship. The characters' names are Seth and Evan, after all. Um, and I think there's a reason Superbad made such an impact, such an impact on uh, R-rated comedies and, and really kind of cemented Apatow's brand and, uh, you know, it was a huge stepping stone for pretty much everyone involved in it. So I, I, it had to make my list just for that alone. Number three, we're coming up on Bridesmaids 2011. This is, of course, the film directed by Paul Feig and starring Chris, Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, and a bunch of other literally hilarious ladies. Rose Byrne, let's mention her. Um, this was a game changer in a lot of ways for Hollywood. It's always really weird to me, and we're seeing that this year with Wonder Woman and uh, Beauty and the Beast and some of the other female-led films really rocking it at the box office. It's it's funny that it takes a movie like Bridesmaids to come out to uh, to have Hollywood executive or studio executives recognize that, oh, wait a minute, you mean women go to movies too? We should make more movies for them? What? That's crazy talk. Uh, I mean, take, the for instance, this weekend. Yes, Dunkirk was number one, but Girls Trip did a, a phenomenal job at the box office, and I don't think anybody expected that. Uh, I mean, I didn't expect, I've seen the trailer several times before other movies, and I did not expect the film to be getting sort of the universal uh, critical acclaim that it's getting. You don't usually see that for R-rated comedies in general. Um, so I think Bridesmaids really helped kick off this new wave of R-rated female-led uh, comedies, and with good reason. I mean, Kristen Wiig is, is, is uh, phenomenal in it. Um, the film got screenplay nomination for Oscars. Uh, as well as Best Supporting Actress for Melissa McCarthy. And it's one of the ones, it's one of those that I saw it and I was like, okay, that was good. But uh, since I, I've seen it uh, since a couple more times and um, sort of like, sort of like Popstar, it uh, it does really grow on you. And I think the, uh, the I was actually funny, I was just talking about Kai, to Kai about this the other day, that my issue with the film, I think initially was that Kristen Wiig's character is really unlikable. She's just not a very good person and I think that I, I had to sort of overcome that because that is after all her arc um, but obviously at this point you've probably already seen Bridesmaids so if you haven't revisited it if you, if you maybe didn't like it as much the first time I would definitely check it out because uh, it, it does live up to the hype and given the the massive uh, game changer status that it has achieved in the years since its release I think it, it definitely qualifies to be number three on this list. Coming in at number two we have Forgetting Sarah Marshall from director Nicholas Stoller, starring and written by Jason Siegel. Now, I was a huge fan of Jason Siegel's from How I Met Your Mother, so I was sort of already curious about this one, um, but I wasn't prepared for the uh, the level of the level of heart or the level of uh, humor that this film brought to the table between um, between Siegel's script and the performances by Kristen Bell, Mila Kunis, Russell Brand, Russell, who, who became such a breakout star of this film that he got his own spin-off, Get Him to the Greek, also directed by Nicholas Stoller, who I think really kind of started, like this was early in his career, this was, yeah, this was his first film, and since he's directed Neighbors and its sequel, Get Him to the Greek, as I mentioned, the five-year engagement, Storks, and now he's doing Friends from College on Netflix. So uh, this is, of course, a movie of, about a uh, composer who follows his ex-girlfriend to Hawaii on vacation and uh, kind of gets involved in a little bit of romance of his own with a, a local resident. And, and it's, it's, it's a great story about overcoming heartbreak and, 
you know, moving on and, and getting kind of finding your finding a new path when the life that you thought you had is sort of dashed before your eyes. Um, and uh, it, it's just one of those films that anytime I turn the TV in, it happens to be on or uh, or, you know, anytime references to it come up in conversation, I'm just like, damn it, I need to watch that again. It's so great. In fact, I was very, very tempted to put it at number one on this list, except for that pesky pop cultural relevance. Which is why, of course, at number one for the the uh, Crooked Table, number one b- top uh, Apatow production, it has to go to Anchorman: The Legend of Ron Burgundy, uh, starring Will Ferrell, directed by Adam McKay. It was I think the first film that they did together, and they've done several more since then. This I have a complicated relationship with this movie because I first saw it and I was like, oh, that was funny. And then I saw it again and I started watching it and got maybe 15 minutes in. I was like, I can't take this. This movie is so annoying. Then I watched it a third time and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is hilarious. So I've settled on the fact that I really like this this film. Uh, it's just so weird and out there and you can really sense the improvisational style of the filmmaker and his cast. And uh, it, it's just. The fact that it's trying to take sort of a uh, sort of a look at news in the '70s, but from a from a sort of um, from a comedic standpoint, just poking fun at it and just serving as a parody of uh, newsmen from the '70s, I think is a lot of fun. Will Ferrell has has kind of never been better in the sort of broad comedy. Um, plus, you have Christina Applegate, Steve Carell, Paul Rudd, David Kuchner. Uh it, It's just it's a it's a who's who of hilarious uh, actors, character actors and such. And um, for everything from the many, many memes and one-liners and catchphrases that this film has uh, has led to, all the cool... I mean, you could, you could walk, any, walk into any department store, you'll find T-shirts that say, uh, I'm kind of a big deal, or uh, well, that escalated quickly, or I'm in a glass case of emotion. That's that's the kind of pop cultural impact that can't be argued with. And if we're talking about, you know, some of the biggest comedies of the past uh, decade or so, actually, it's been now more than a decade of the 2000s. Then let's say that uh, Anchorman is definitely towards the top of the list. And for a film that Apatow hasn't directed, uh, his, his fingerprints are all over this, as well as, of course, Adam McKay and, Fer- and uh, Will Ferrell and everything so um yeah this this i had no choice but to put this at number one even though i might personally prefer some other movies this one just has all the ingredients of uh, of a top avatar production so that'll be all for our let's talk about six or judd apatow productions let's take a look at the latest avatar production the big sick are you judging pakistan's next top model you know how we have arranged marriage in my culture oh my god i'm so stupid can you imagine a world in which we end up together. I don't know. I'm looking for Emily Gardner. She was checked in tonight. There's an infection. We put her in a medically induced coma. Coma. You should call her family. Thank you, Kamala. We're gonna handle things from here. I think I'm just gonna wait anyway. You guys broke up. I'm not sure why you're here. All right, so The Big Sick from director Michael Showalter, who's done movies like The Baxter and Hello, My Name is Doris. Um, going into this one, this is going to be an interesting one because uh, as far as the format of the reviews that we normally do, we talk about the hype, the story, the cast, the production, and the verdict. As far as the hype, I'd heard a lot of stuff about this film going in. I hadn't really seen any of Michael Showalter's previous movies. I hadn't 
uh, I was only vaguely familiar with Kumail Nanjiani um, and you know his work on Silicon Valley and elsewhere before going in. All I really had, only hype I really had for this film was um, I knew some of the supporting players, of course, uh, Ray Romano, Holly Hunter, and Zoe Kazan from other things that I've seen. But I, I and of course, producer Judd Apatow, as I sort of structured this whole episode around. But I didn't really have a lot of familiarity with the major players. I wasn't super familiar with the star or the director. So the hype that I had for this going in, and I guess we'll start with the hype, um, is that is that I had just I had heard from so many sources, podcasts, and you know sites, and uh, you know just all over the place. I've been hearing about what an amazing film this was, and to the point that I was a little worried going into it that I would come out of the film feeling let down just because of all the expectations that had been set in motion beforehand about how it it you know so perfectly blends comedy and drama and how the film is so heartfelt and and um, how how it's it, you know it's hilarious and it, and it really it feels fresh and original unlike other things out there and I was worried coming out that I would feel let down so let's move into the story this story, for those of you who are unaware, uh, is written by Kumail Nanjani and his wife, Emily V. Gordon. And it's loosely, I don't know how loosely, because I have to read some interviews with, with uh, the, the writers here to find out exactly how much of this is based on reality and how much is, um, you know, sort of fabricated and tweaked for the convenience of telling a Hollywood, well, not Hollywood, because this is, this is more, this is from Amazon Studios. So this is a, not exactly like, you know, Walt Disney production or, you know, Warner Brothers or Universal or one of the big studios. This is a little more indie than, than that. But uh, the, the conventional, the conventions of telling a coherent, uh, satisfying story. I wonder how much change went involved into, uh, you know, the screening or screenwriting process. So this is based on their real-life courtship. Um, it involves heavily Kumail's Pakistani background and the arranged marriage that uh, his parents are trying to to force upon him even in his, you know, 30s at this point. And, uh, and the relationship that blooms between him and Emily in the film played by Zoe Kazan and uh, yeah, it, it takes a, an interesting turn when this is not, if you're in the, if you want to go into this movie completely cold, which I would recommend, uh, you're a little late because you sort of heard the part of the trailer that I played in there. But um, I would recommend not knowing, knowing as little about this movie as possible before you go into it, because I feel like, I feel like uh, with most comedies, the, the gags will land, uh, the jokes will land harder for you if you don't see them coming a mile away. And the uh, the premise and all the twists and turns inherent therein will uh, will be much more satisfying. So if you don't if you want to go in completely cold, I would recommend just going to see it and then coming back to listen to this because I'm not going to get into spoilers, but I'm going to get into a little bit of the general plot. So Emily is um, you know their relationship sort of hits the skids, and Emily is admitted into the hospital with a mysterious illness and put into a medical medically induced coma. Um, from this point on, Kumail, who is sort of her ex, I guess, at this point in their relationship, sort of uh, befriends her parents and uh, goes through this this incredible growing process with her parents as they're dealing with Emily's illness and how to uh, how to 
how to put their lives together basically with this you know with this person that's so prevalent in their lives and her fate sort of hanging in the balance and for Kumail who at this point had been very non-committal in the relationship and sort of just going along with whatever his family wanted him to do with the arranged marriage not really pursuing it but not really standing his ground either he, this be, this begins a period of reflection where he starts to think back about his relationship with Emily, how he really feels about her, um, and 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 it's 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 really beautiful because there are a lot of moments throughout where you see him um, thinking back on what he had with her and how special she was or is. She's in a coma; she's not dead. Um, and there's there's little moments like him listening to. Uh, voicemails that he has on his phone of her and like um, there's a beautiful moment in like it's middle in the film because the film does sort of take a different shape probably not quite halfway but the first act is probably a little longer than you would assume it is where his uh, her parents are coming over to her house and of course they're staying there because they're from out of town and he he kind of goes into the bedroom and like cleans up a couple of things and puts like she has like a little a little bit of pot and she like puts it away and he's like he's basically protecting her from uh you know even at this point even though they're they're not together even though you know uh their their future at this point is her life the future for life is very uncertain let alone the relationship um it it's just little moments like that 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 feel realistic that feel like like uh like they have been touched by someone who's really lived through this and there is a lot there is a lot in Kumail's story as well as the story of Ray Romano and Holly Hunter's character as well as the story of Kumail's parents and his family life uh, that does feel very authentic and it it gets a lot of its humor out of uh, just awkward pauses and um you know, uh, uncomfortable silences and someone has to say something and and um, feels very character based and not at all staged or um, just like broad comedy or, or sort of goofy for the sake of, of you know, uh, placating audiences. It all feels very authentic to the story being told. There are uh, a lot of jokes, of course, that... Uh, tie into the fact that in the film Kumail and his friends are all stand-up comics so that sort of lends itself to um, to a natural installment of jokes regularly because you do see him him on stage and him dealing with different things but this is one of those films that just turns on a dime where uh, it's hilarious one minute then it's really sad the next minute I'm not gonna lie there were a lot of points in this movie where I was very affected emotionally where I was very attached to what was happening and a lot of that had to do not only with the writing, which I've already praised a couple, a few times here, um, but also the performances. So moving from the story into the cast, Kumail Nanjani, I, I guess I said up top, I wasn't really familiar with him very much. I mean, I'd heard the name and I knew he was on Silicon Valley, but that's about it. I hadn't really seen any of his uh, comedy or seen him in any other films or shows or really or anything. Um, so he was kind of a bit of a revelation for me. I wasn't, I didn't know what to expect from him going in, but he does has this very natural quality as a leading man, where um, when he has to emote 
he, he does so in a very understated but very effective way. And there's a few scenes in here where he does sort of uh, let loose emotionally. Um, but it never feels, but it never goes too big. It never goes too big in like lifetime movie style, like tears streaming down his face or anything. It feels, it feels more grounded. It feels like, um, it feels like how this character or how this man would have reacted to these scenarios in real life. And that's why I'm curious about how much of this was actually closely tied to their real relationship and how much was sort of manifested itself in the screenwriting process. Uh, but Kumail is, is so spot on here, and um, Zoe Kazan, even though she does not have as much screen time as a lot of the other actors, you, you do DM get a sense of who she is and her sort of guardedness and how that falls by the wayside in her relationship with Kumail early on. You get enough material from her to care about that character, which in the little bit of screen time that she has, is critical. But not only that, it's um, it, it's it, it, the entire film hinges upon it. If you don't care about Emily, then you don't care about her relationship with Kumail, and then you don't care about the rest of the film. It's like the emotional stakes are just pff, they, to completely fall flat. So I think she does a great job in there with what she has to work with. Um, Holly Hunter and Ray Romano here... Um, I guess Ray Romano has been doing some dramatic work on shows like Vinyl and in different films here and there. He's going to be in The Irishman from Martin Scorsese alongside De Niro and Pacino and Pesci and Keitel. So it's interesting to see that side of him. I'm a, I'm familiar with his uh, you know sitcom work and Everybody Loves Raymond, things like that. To see him in a in a more dramatic role like this, I think is I think he really shines here and. Uh, you know, I wouldn't have expected that from him, that he would bring that level of of depth and, yes, humor, but also just, like, uh, flawed likability that he brings here. Um, Holly Hunter, of course, is great in everything. She's Holly Hunter. And I think that I wouldn't be surprised if Holly Hunter and or Ray Romano see themselves nominated for uh, some awards going into the award season at the end of the year. Uh, probably not Oscar, because it depends how crowded that field is. But I can definitely see them being, you know, probably like um, maybe Independent Spirit Awards if this film qualifies for some of that. Uh, I, I just think that so much of the film's emotional heft really rests on their shoulders. I mean, they have a whole secondary plot line that um, dovetails off of the one with Kumail and Emily. And I, I, um, I think in lesser hands, that could have just felt like filler. Whereas here, I think it really enriches their relationship, not only with each other, but with their daughter and with Kumail. And um, you just get this real sense of three people dealing with a very emotional event in their lives and um, how it shapes them and how it brings them together or not. <laughs> Spoilers, I'm not going to get into uh, I'm not going to get into how this all works out. Uh, you will have to see the film for yourself. But going into the production, there's a lot of um, a lot of great things going on in this film. I mean, I think the score is really strong. I think um, the I think the editing could have used a bit more work. That's one thing I will critique about it. It does have some of the trappings of Judd Apatow movies that do tend to go on a little bit longer than they should. It reaches a, a conclusion point and uh, starts to feel like it's going to be winding down and then extends for another 20, 20 minutes or so. Uh, I think part of that is good because I think part of it is dealing with the fallout of 
uh, of Emily's illness in a uh, in a more realistic way. But I also feel like you know just the pacing of the film tends to peter off in that in that um, you know winding down period of of the story that I think it could have been tightened up a little bit here and there and um, maybe finished slightly stronger. That that's not to say that there's um, the end. The ending is not. That's not to say the ending is not satisfying because to me it was really satisfying. I think the way this story tied itself together, I think, um, does 100% have a lot of interesting things to say about relationships, about modern relationships, about um, Pakistani culture and cultures that involve arranged marriage, which is, you know, as a white male, white American male, I'm not really 100% uh, familiar with. So I thought that was an, uh, an interesting facet of the film that is brought to light here at different... Uh, I'm always... That's one of the things I love about going to the movies, hearing uh, new, seeing new cultures brought to light and um, kind of given this big uh, platform to tell the story. And um, yeah, just for the most part, there's not a whole lot of things to complain about production wise. So what is the verdict for The Big Sick? Well, in case you can't tell by now, this is a fiercely funny, uh, very emotional comedy slash drama that is probably the best comedy I've seen this year. It's uh, it's certainly one of my favorite films of the year. Um, and I think Nanjani and uh, Gordon's script is definite contender for best original screenplay for the best uh, for the Academy Awards. I think this is a film that will probably surprise people and maybe even sneak into the best picture race deservedly. It feels to me like every year there's basically a little indie that could um, a lot of times it's a comedy, and I'm thinking of films like Little Miss Sunshine, I'm thinking of films like Juno, I'm thinking of of movies like The Full Monty, or things like that. There's always a little small uh, indie comedy drama that rises above and, and sneaks its way into Best Picture and some other major categories. And especially with the 10 nominees now, I think The Big Sick could definitely fit in there. Um, it, it sheds light on a side of relationships, a side of uh, family life that we, uh, you know, most moviegoers aren't really that familiar with. And it does so in a, in a very effective way with stellar performances across the board. Does it go a little bit long at times? Yes. Do every, does every single joke or land? Eh, not, not, not 100% of the time, but pretty close. And um, the, the film, the film is... Probably one of the best movie-going experiences I've had this year. Um, so I'm definitely going to go... Right now I'm on the verge. It's funny because right now I'm on the verge of 4 and 4.5. I'm leaning towards 4.5 out of 5 for The Big Sick. Definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. Mostly, Most likely it is playing in your area at this point um, because it has gone for a wide release. So I would definitely recommend you go see it now before it is gone. Dunkirk and War for the Planet of the Apes and some of the other movies right now. They will be there in a few weeks. The Big Sick might not, just because it is kind of just sweeping its way through the nation. Um, but I, I'm relieved to see that it's not only, you know, getting gotten really strong reviews, as I said, up top with the hype section of this review, but also kind of really racking up the um, solid box office for a film this small. So definitely check this out if you haven't seen it. Um, and let me know what you think. That concludes this episode of the Crooked Table Podcast. As I said, sorry about getting this episode out a little later than usual. Um, 
between scheduling and uh, power outages and all kinds of mess of stuff. This uh, this is not my intention, and this is not the beginning of a pattern. I like sticking with getting episodes up by the end of a weekend. It's uh, it's an easier way for me to keep myself on task. So you will be getting um, another episode this week sometime between Friday and Sunday. And most likely this next one will focus on Dunkirk and dealing with the films of Christopher Nolan. Until then, you can rate and review us on iTunes if you'd be so kind. Also find the Crooked Table Podcast on Stitcher. You can find me, Robert Yanis Jr., at Crooked Table on Twitter. And we're also on Facebook and the other social medias. You can find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. As I already said, next week we're probably going to be dealing into Dunkirk. I might even squeeze out, because I am actually going to be out of town the following week, I might actually even squeeze in another film, um, possibly Atomic Blonde, possibly The Beguile. There's a few other movies out that I haven't mentioned uh, on here lately just because I haven't gotten a chance to see them. But, uh, you know, rest assured, they are on my my, my must-see list. Um, so that'll be next, well, not next week, technically this weekend now, but next episode. And uh, until then, I've been Rob. We'll catch you around the table next week. Roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. C-R-O-O-K-E-D. <laughs> <laughs>